Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Millennial Love, the independent lifestyle desk's weekly podcast on love, dating and relationships. Hosted by me, Rachel Hosey, assistant lifestyle editor. And me, Olivia Petter, lifestyle writer. Dating today is a world away from what it was even just 10 years ago. With dating apps, millennials are finding it harder to meet people than ever before. And even when we do, who's to say we won't then be ghosted or zombied? So that's why we decided to launch Millennial Love as two long-time singletons in their 20s talking candidly about all of the things everyone is doing but not always willing to admit. This week we are so happy to be joined by one of my favourite authors, uh, the wonderful Matt Haig, who you probably know from his best-selling book Reasons to Stay Alive and some of his wonderful fiction books, most recently How to Stop Time, and his newest book, which is out in a few weeks, which is called Notes on a Nervous Planet. Uh, hello, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Hello, guys. Hi. Welcome. Olivia, Rachel. <laughs> Could you start off for some of the listeners who might not be familiar mm-hmm. with your books talking about a bit of the background behind Reasons to Stay Alive and because sure. it's quite similar in terms of format to Notes on a Nervous Planet and what prompted you to write the new book? Okay, well Reasons to Stay Alive, that was probably, the, you know, at the time it was definitely the most personal thing I've ever written. I, I'd written like 10 books before that but that was all fiction. And um, Reasons to Stay Alive was the only book I've ever written that I was asked to write it wasn't by a publisher but a a friend who experienced depression themselves had read a blog i'd I'd put out there called reasons to stay alive and they said oh you should write that book and i didn't know i i I hovered and my you know i I didn't know if my publishers would want it i didn't know if i wanted to write it um i didn't know if i was interesting enough i didn't know you know not being a celebrity celebrity person i didn't know if my experience was um, unique enough or wild enough. Uh, but then I was convinced by other people that that was kind of the point, you know, mm. that, that it was a relatable thing, that, you know, a quarter of us go through something similar and um, that feeling of being alone and isolated is lessened by hearing other stories. So, yeah, it was my story of when I was 24, um, living, partying, working in Ibiza, not knowing where my life was going, about to head back to London. One morning, not it wasn't any sort of wild, crazy um, sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of thing. It was, I'd been for a run that day, but I, I had a panic attack. The panic attack didn't end. Um, I had no idea what was going on. You think of a panic attack as like a 10-minute experience mm. and you walk it off. This didn't. Uh, you know, I was, I was I was in. I know it's not a clinical term, but it was full nervous breakdown, and um, I was trapped in depression, anxiety. I was suicidal. I was like, it was crisis point in my life, and I eventually got better. But it was a, a very long um, process of going down different avenues and cul-de-sacs and working out 
you know, I was given the wrong pills and various things. Mm. And Reason to Stay Alive is me talking about that, is talking directly about um, my recovery. Um, you know, I'm not in a perfect state of mental health, but how I got away from the suicidal part of my life and what I would tell my 24-year-old self now. And Notes on a Nervous Planet is a follow-up, but, you know, I'd written loads of books after Reasons to Stay Alive, which were like the opposite of it. I wrote a kid's book about Father Christmas. <laughs> I wrote about a novel about a 439-year-old and various other bits and pieces. And I didn't think I was ever going to write like a Reasons to Stay Alive 2. And, and Notes on a Nervous Planet definitely isn't. But it's looking at mental health. The way we look at um, physical health, really, is looking at it f with the context of... Um, lifestyle and how, how we live our lives so everything from sleep work technology social media how these things in this fast fast changing society we live in impact our minds it's it's so interesting because even though you don't really touch on relationships in the book that much you don't really touch on dating um because mm. you're obviously married um <laughs> so that's not something that you're in lucky you <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I found that so many of the little observations that you make throughout the book apply to yeah. the anxieties that Rachel and I talk about all the time on the show that spurn from dating app culture and the way that things are moving so much quicker. Mm -hmm. So we expect faster responses from the people that we might be speaking to. Sure. You know, we have dating apps where you're swiping from one person to the next, everyone's sort of disposable. We therefore treat each other a little bit worse than we might have done. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose it's... A, a an extension of and a probably the more brutal end of social media culture anyway mm, where yeah. we're constantly in this sort of comparison game and we're, we're like on this sort of stock market of ourselves out there and it's very hard to kind of insulate our emotional self from that mm. and I suppose it's even more judgy when you're literally you know dismissing people or mm. accepting people just with your finger like yeah, it's actually such a bizarre concept. I'm sure 15 years ago you tried to explain <coughs> this whole concept of dating apps where you are putting yourself forward to be judged um, of like whether someone likes yeah. the look at you, look of you. It's it's so bizarre and it's become so normal. Oh, so much to get into. So much to get into. Um, before we do, however, um, Livy, what has been going on in your life? Um, what's been going on? I've been looking at, because it was the Sex and the City 20th anniversary last week. Oh, Are you yes. familiar, Matt? Have you watched it? <laughs> With Sex and the City? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. Um, so I did a piece um, about what the show would look like today and what some of the core relationships would be like. So just sort of like silly observations, like one of the characters called Charlotte. She um, gets divorced from her first husband. I like Charlotte. I like Charlotte I like too. Charlotte. Everyone likes Charlotte. She was my Everyone fave. Everyone wants to be Charlotte, don't Yeah. They? Well, I secretly still want to be Carrie. Oh, she no. has a better wardrobe. <laughs> but anyway, Charlotte stays married to... Oh no, what she gets it? divorced from Trey. We should all be Mirandas. Yes. We should all be Miranda. She's the best. She's the unsung hero of the show. Exactly. But anyway, um, oh God, sorry, I'm getting so confused between them all. Charlotte leaves her husband, but still he, he gives her his Park Avenue apartment to live in for free. How delightful. So I said that would never happen today because there's no way that in the current climate that someone would just give away an apartment like that. Oh, so gosh, she would have no. still been married to him and been quite unhappy in that relationship. Um, so Sad. I've been, ma yeah, ba mainly <laughs> making up fantasy Sex and the City 
plot lines. Which really fun. <laughs> That's the time. Mind you, mind you, I think I think even at the time that was probably a little bit unrealistic. <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> along the lines of the friend's apartment being. I was about to mention. <laughs> mm. 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 Would never happen. Yeah. What about you, Rach? I wrote an article about which I actually mentioned this. I think episodes and episodes and episodes ago about how I had got back in touch with guys who'd ghosted me. So guys who I dated or I'd been going to date and we'd moved from a dating app onto WhatsApp. Can and I be an embarrassing caveman and yeah. say what, what's ghosting? Sure. Ghosting is when you are talking to someone or maybe you're dating them. You might still be in the early stages of messaging. You might have been dating for months and then they just cease to reply. They stop replying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an awful, awful yeah. practice. Some people argue that this has been happening forever and people just would stop calling and but I think it's got a lot worse thanks to the advent of dating apps, messaging, etc, etc um, it's incredibly common now which is a shame and so I decided to maybe sometimes months down the line message the guys who'd ghosted me and sort of ask why they did it and um, the article uh, on the whole got very positive responses a lot of people saying wow, this is brilliant, which was so nice. Um, and a lot of people were saying, uh, older people who didn't know what it was or hadn't experienced it were saying, I'm so sorry that this is what it's like now. And then, of course, I got some people who just went, get a life. So that was charming. Oh, wow. <laughs> people yeah. are so kind. It's like how, it, I think it's that lack of like three-dimensional human contact yeah. that makes us... And, and like I, I think we're all guilty of it to a degree. That thing like we're not really dealing with human beings. Totally. That, you know, but they're not fully human beings until they're in front of us in yeah. a room. You'd be surprised though how much people ghost even after after meeting actual up. meeting. Which I think is bad. Yeah, it's but bad, but it's yeah, it's probably it's probably like when when you start seeing human beings in the, like a marketplace, it's almost like a sort of consumer culture version mm. of human relationships. Totally. Yeah, and you don't even really, you know, the the profiles that you do see on these apps, they're not mm. necessarily an authentic reflection of what that person would be yeah. in the flesh at all. Far People from it. People need manners, I think. Mm. Absolutely. I think if we take away one thing from this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've actually got a lot still to get into. So there's probably a lot to take away, but that's point number one. Come on, millennial men, have manners. <laughs> yeah. Not just men, though. No, Some women no, do it too. Yeah, that's, that's to be said. That's true. But I do think men are worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of men... Um, let's do bio of the week. Um, so this is one that you're either going to get or not. Um, if you're familiar with a certain TV show. Yeah. <laughs> Which we've already mentioned, actually. Oh, well, don't give the game Sorry. away. Sorry. All right. So this is from a man called Andy. And his bio reads, L is for life. And what is life without love? O is for... Oh, wow. V is for this very... Surprising turn of events. <laughs> e is for how extremely normal I find it. <laughs> that was like a dramatic reading. Wow. <laughs> I was contemplating extremely doing it normal. in an American accent, um, but I decided not to. Mm. For anyone who didn't pick that up, that is um, a rather notable little monologue that Ross says in Friends in the episode of The One Where Ross is Fine, which is where he goes on this double date with Rachel and Joey and Charlie's also there. And um, I just think if you're a Friends fan, you can't not sort of laugh if you read that. Um, <laughs> so I think very good bio from Andy. Mm, I agree. I really like it. I would like to now 
if we go deep dive into the main topic of today's podcast, which is sort of going to be about mental well-being in relationships in light of some of the points that Matt touches on in his book. So there were certain, basically the way that it's structured, you might be able to explain this better than I am, but there's sort of like mini chapters, some of which are a couple of lines, some of which are a few pages. Very easily digestible, if you will. Yes. Yeah, I like, I really like short chapters. Mm. That's my thing. I think it's a mental health thing, actually. And also, it fools people into thinking they like your book more than they do because they think, oh, this is really, I'm really turning the pages. Mm. And you know when you're like reading a book or reading something and you have to sort of like dog ear the page because you're you're halfway through the chapter. You feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm into this book because I I, I don't give people the option of that because it's like a paragraph. And also white space. I like white. Like my house is like totally just all painted white, and mm. I think it's a mental health thing. And you, if you if you see lots of nice white space, it's quite an Instagrammy thing, I suppose, isn't it? Where you just have this mm. sort of pretty text. But Absolutely. I kind of like it. But yeah, anyway. Sorry. So some of the little chapters that I think inadvertently actually touch on all of the dating app culture things that we spoke <coughs> about earlier is the idea of being more connected than ever before. In the term, in the sense that, you know, we have so many dating apps at our disposal and, you know, extending beyond that so many channels of communication with which to speak to the people that we may or may not match with on these dating apps. And yet, you know, reports of loneliness are higher than ever. People Mm. are, we've got a minister for loneliness. Yeah. And that's the weird thing. Rates of loneliness are rising in line with our connectivity. We're connected. We've got more inverted commas friends than ever before and yet we're lonelier and like we we you know you're hearing the news about this sort of elderly and how they're alone because they're on their own in the house but what's what's st- you, you sort of sort of can understand that kind of loneliness but what's interesting is when millennials and even younger than millennials like teenagers are reporting massive you know school kids are reporting massive high levels of loneliness and you think how are you lonely you've got like 200 people on Instagram you're surrounded by people at school and mm. you're surrounded by people mm. but loneliness isn't you can be the loneliest person in the world in the midst of 10,000 people can't you you, you, totally. you know loneliness isn't about f- physical access to people in a room it's about internal stuff and how you connect and I think that's the way with a lot of actual mental health <coughs> issues that people might face is that often you can't see it at all like, what's, it, what's the thing you've been researching recently, Livy? Smiling depression. Yeah. Yeah, well, just about, obviously, obviously mental health is more in the public consciousness than it ever has mm. been, and mm. that's a brilliant thing. But clearly, when we look at last week with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, there are still these great public, high-profile figures that yeah. aren't speaking openly about their battles that they may or may have not, have not had mm. with mental health. Obviously, we don't know that information. But in light of, in light of their really tragic deaths by suicide it, it's it's something that really has been ringing on I think a lot of people's minds mm. and it's the idea where you obviously you can just hide it you can just hide that you're going through all of these internal yeah, struggles but from everyone and yes yeah no totally I mean that's one of the problems with m- not all mental illnesses but most can be invisible you mm. know unless you are articulate them and this is what really annoys me when people like certain parts of the media or certain public individuals or high profile people on twitter or whoever it is um talk about how we go on about 
mental illness or it's a celebrity fashion or it's a fad or a trend and it's like still 99% of mental illness you're not seeing and you're not hearing and the act of externalizing and talking about whoever it is whether you know like recently like um the rock who's the Mm. definition he's the archetypal macho celebrity you know was opening up about his depression and that's so incredibly healthy because a it normalizes it and when you're ill i was ill when i was 24 it was pre-social media uh it was like like 1999 2000 and i felt like the weirdest person in the universe because i didn't know any of anybody who had it so i think i think there is a comfort and um, you know social media is bad for all kinds of things for mental health but one thing that's good for is making you realize there are other people mm. who have an echo mm. of your mind or who feel things that you feel and that there's a comfort and a therapy just in knowing that just in knowing that people are you're not the only person i mm. felt like i it sounds weirdly sort of strangely arrogant or weird <laughs> to say but i felt like i was the only person who'd felt this or i was like feeling worse than anyone had felt because i didn't know anyone i i was aware of the terms depression and anxiety but i i none of among my sort of mainly male group of friends no one i knew had been open about it since then i know people that i did go to school with who were feeling those things but would have never talked about about it Mm. i think i think it's it's only very recently that that started to change i think even when i was at school people wouldn't have talked about it with their friends really teenagers didn't i don't think so no i don't think so either but i think what's really because I know that you know, you said that you didn't you didn't necessarily have many people to speak to at the, at the time that you knew were going through that. But when I was reading Reasons to Stay yeah. Alive, I think the the support that you well I had was, Andrea yeah I exactly had, that's I what I was going to say. So girlfriend. how did that how did the support from that relationship help you through it? And how well it I think it was you? my you know I think I I I, I think I was sort of lucky basically. Were you already with her when... We'd been together, like, we were together from 19. Oh, wow. She was, she always resented the fact that I had a full year at university and she had, like, three weeks at university. She was practically a fresher. And then along, you know, then it was saddled with me. And (laughs) (laughs) and so, so, yeah, but you can't help when you meet someone. But, um, yeah, so... At 24, if you've been in a relationship since 19, that's like l- long term. You know, I, f- I, I felt almost as close to her then as I do now. You know, we'd been, yeah. it felt like infinity. Very formative time of your life exactly. as well. So we'd kind of grown up together in all sorts of different ways. And um, yeah, but having said that, she didn't know anything about depression or anxiety. She didn't know anything about mental illness, um, really. But I think simply having someone who would listen, feeling like, she wasn't about to run off at the first sign of trouble and, you know, feeling like I could just externalise something and be comfortable with that. Like, more comfortable even than with my parents. I could just talk to her. Because, you know, to be honest, I hadn't been, like, outwardly mentally ill before that. But I hadn't been, like, the easiest going person. I mean, mm. literally, we'd probably known each other about six weeks and I was crying in front of her about my mum or something. I, I, like, some troubled thing. I was a bit, I was a bit, like... I was continually surprised that she stayed with me, but <laughs> <laughs> she did. And um, yeah, I think I feel like I, you know, I, I'm infinitely grateful. I hope in a parallel universe where I hadn't met Andrea, I'd have still found reasons. I like to believe, and one of the things and reasons to stay alive is is you you kind of have to make 
the reasons with the stuff that you've got around you. Mm-hmm. But I, I am very grateful that I had those reasons. And, uh, you know, not just Andrea, I had supportive parents as well that we could go and live, you know, because we had no money. We were masses of debt. Um, but, you know, going back to live at home and all of that. But, yeah, having Andrea who could work out. But at the same time as well, I suppose the only bad thing about that was I was feeling constantly guilty, which mm. added the weight to it. Because even though Andrea wasn't outwardly moaning at me about it, I could tell it was wearing her down, understandably. And she was the one who was having to sort everything out. You know, we, we weren't where we are now in life. We had all kinds of financial stuff going on. And um, we had, we, she couldn't stay. She was back living with her future in-laws. Mm. And so it wasn't the ideal situation. And then she was dealing with me at the same time. And she was um, sorting all out. So I will forever be grateful for certainly those three months, which were really hard when we were living with my parents. I was ill. And she was shielding me from the world and friends who were wanting to go out. And I couldn't, I wasn't then like I am now where I could comfortably talk about it because I didn't even understand it. I couldn't articulate it to anyone. Andrew was the first person who told me to write down what I was feeling. That's interesting. And it was nothing like what's written in Reasons to Stay Alive. It was just like the lyrics to the sort of like worst heavy metal song or something. <laughs> it was just like, my head is on fire and I'm, you know, I'm in hell and this, you know, it was unreadable, horrible stuff. But. It, it externalized that pain, you know, just the act of writing, like the act of talking could be therapy. Do you think she felt any sort of, I don't know, not responsibility, but do you think you were probably, wor- were you worried about her having to shoulder this as an extra burden? Yeah, no, I totally felt that. I felt like I was, a, you know, I felt like, um, I felt kind of like she'd had, every, she would have every right to not stay with me i didn't uh, because obviously a symptom of depression is low self-esteem anyway yeah so i wasn't feeling like i i was hating myself anyway and um i it was it was very hard to uh yeah yeah it was very hard for her i think to understand what i was feeling and it was very hard for her just to, you know it was affecting her if you're that close to somebody and they're going through something that emotional and mental it kind of leaks out. It's contagious. Yeah. So mm. it was affecting her mental health. It was not. She wasn't having a breakdown like I was, but she was getting depressed with it, and like, it it was hard for her. And I obviously there was no one there for her. She couldn't talk about that openly with her parents, because or even her friends, because her friends would have said, "Oh, you've just got to sort of leave him." And, but they've all said different messages that wouldn't have been necessarily helpful in that situation. So it was it was very hard. She was very alone. It's very difficult. I do think that that is something that uh, is really an improvement now is that I th- just the fact that people talk about it more. And so if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is struggling with mental health, you, you would probably feel that you could then talk to your friends and talk to your family about that and help each other and get each other through. Because obviously for it's, it, it is difficult for the person who's supporting the other mm. person who's going through something. And then, you know, I think then there's also if you're the the boyfriend or the girlfriend in this situation, sometimes you almost feel like there's so much pressure to be like a rock and be really solid and you can, you know, you don't don't want to ever show weakness or, Mm. you know, if you're struggling with anything yourself. Um, And so I think it's important for that person to be able to talk about it as well. And I think that must have been really hard for you guys at the time. Yeah, it was really hard. And there's certain things like she couldn't shield me from, like, like for instance, her brother got married during this period, so we had to go to London for a wedding. And like, it's like, 
literally among the it should have been a happy day and it was for most people but it was literally about my worst day of my life because really? i had we, we were living in the northeast at this point with her parents we were sort of there for a week and we went down on the train and it was just like i had to be up at six in the morning and and I didn't realize those things about how important sleep was or anything like mm. that. And I was just in this total despair. But having to look happy because it's someone else's wedding. You couldn't just go there. And so, yeah, just agony. But it, just having those moments just with Andrea on our own and just talking, continually talking, talking, talking helps. And I think, you know, that's, for me, the most important thing in a long-term relationship. Someone who you can just be your weird self Mm, with absolutely. who gives you that room to be your weird self and so so much of sort of I suppose relationships in the early days and stuff is like you're presenting yourself to someone and you're yes. trying to attract someone but what's really valuable in those long-term relationships is is almost the opposite of that where you're literally vesting your worst bits mm. yeah it's getting it's getting to it's getting beneath the surface and getting to the authenticity and I think that's harder to do now than ever before because you know like like you speak about in the book everyone's everyone's presenting the version of themselves that they want the world to see and you know it's very you know you can even convince yourself that mm. that construction is who you really are yeah so true yeah because so, so every, everyone has a personal brand and then you feel like you have to do things that fit in with your brand or maybe only i feel like that <laughs> <laughs> i totally feel like that well i feel like that even when i'm talking about mental health sometimes weirdly because that's become my sort of thing mm. i'm mr depression so <laughs> I find, oh God, yeah, so here's my daily dose of despair for you. <laughs> <laughs> I really like what you're saying about the weird self thing though, because I actually, you know, I've got like really close friends and everything, but they're the only people who I let my true weird self out around are my immediate, immediate family. Mm-hmm. So like, the, you know, obviously, ultimately, I want to find someone I can be my weird self with, but... God, my weird self's really weird. Yeah. You're quite, you're quite weird around me. I've seen your weird stuff. <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> I think there's always a weirder, weirder, weirder self that yeah. no one sees. Yeah, <laughs> but, but just levels, of layers, weird. layers of weird. It's like an onion. You, you've yeah, got absolutely. Different. And I like the bit in your book when you said, um, "Don't try and be cool or impress the cool people." Mm. Like that was really like, yeah, that don't you, you know? Well, maybe I... don't let your full weirdness out straight away but i'll say bad at that i think possibly because we were living in a beef at the time we were surrounded by like the cool people but <laughs> um yeah i was so insecure you know because even though i wasn't well i wasn't outwardly like knowing i was mentally ill before that but like when i was 23 and stuff and looking for jobs in london I, I was like a nervous wreck i was trying to get a job in the advertising industry so i'd go around like soho square or something and i'd, I'd end up with an interview at Saatchi or something and i'd stand mm. outside not being able to dare enter the building after i got an interview and they'd seen the stuff and everything and i just had i so i think the crisis point that came with me was just like it needed to happen it was inevitably going to happen there needed to be some slap around the face where i sort of discovered who i am because it's utterly utterly horrible obviously and i wouldn't wish it on anyone but when you absolutely hit rock bottom i think the important thing about rock bottom is the rock bit and you kind of like find something solid that is you Mm. like centuries ago would have called a soul but you know it's yourself (laughs) that's you that can't be broken and that's that's the sort of thing that you kind of hold on to for your life that doesn't change 
How, how and that's then what was the rock bottom for you and then how did you start coming up with I mean rock bottom for me was literally I was going to throw myself off a literal cliff in Ibiza and um, it was simply because I, 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 I felt like I didn't you know it sounds so weird when you were suicidal to say I didn't want to die but I felt it, I suppose the only way to describe it the best way which people describe it is if you're trapped in a burning building you don't want to jump out of a window, but mm. if the other option is for fire, mm. and like my, I was on flames. I was just like in this sort of my mind was like collapsing in on itself, and it's the mo- it's the hardest thing to explain because it's not a physical pain, but it, it's kind of worse than that because it's you. You're the thing that is the pain, and right. it's just like you can't escape a bad back. You can sort of sit down, you can take tablets for it, you can move around, but when it's yourself, you, you, there's no escaping yourself. You can take tablets which sort of lower the volume of it, but you eventually have to sort it out. And I had to sort of go through um, go through that. But yeah, rock bottom was that. Rock bottom was not even dreading even having to make the journey to the airport home. Um, Andrea being there, you know, uh, it was great having Andrea, as we've just said. But at that point, I, d- I felt like I didn't have anyone um, because even though Andrea was there, it felt like she was on another planet because I was like miles away from everybody. And um, I was being prescribed diazepam, which was just um, spacing out even further. And I just um, felt there was no, literally no way out. And I even resented, I resented being in a relationship. I resented having parents. I resented anything because I just thought it'd be easier just to disappear off the face of the earth. That was rock bottom. And um, it, it if there was no, um, you know, I, I was phobic about getting help because I'd had a bad experience on pills. So I was, I was my own worst enemy. I had to go a very long, hard way um, through recovery. I was lucky, as I said, to have Andrea. But it was, it was three years of sort of slowly, incrementally getting better, then dropping back again, getting better. Panic attacks, swinging into depression, swinging into panic attacks, the, uh, you know, bits of OCD, or the whole sort of smorgasbord of, Crap. Mm. Yeah. Do you think without the support and like the stability of of your relationship with Andrea, things would have been? I think so. Harder. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's impossible to say because you don't know. You don't know. I don't know. For instance, if there was some um, like point, you know, if I, if 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 there would have been something in me that forced me to sort of like looking like since i've had kids for instance and i have anxiety there's something where i can take myself out of myself easier because i've got a responsibility it you know maybe maybe i was always going to feel that level of bad and having andrea you know made me more useless in a way because I, i couldn't you know i had someone who could sort of do stuff i don't know i have no idea but um yeah i definitely think having a routine and having a home and having a base that was her was um Mm was what I needed. I think it's important that we kind of touch on this, the power that the stability of that love that you can get from a relationship can actually give you because we're so we're often so negative about dating on this podcast. But but the way that you write about love in, in all senses of it, you know, I think in reasons to stay alive, you talk about it like it like it's like it's magic almost. There's one line where you say how to stop time, kiss, is that it? Yeah. And I love that line. I I've got soppier with age, I think. <laughs> I know, but I'm soppy as well. I love it so much. I'm so soppy. I just, I think, I think like, I think, I think there's not enough romance uh, in the world generally. I mean, in, in the broadest sense, not just in romantic love, just in mm. sort of like, 
you know, feeling and stuff. And we're, we're in kind of a harsh era, I think, of society. I think there's lots of glorious things about life, but there's also we can be a bit cruel and cutting to each other and a lot of our humour, even when we've got a good cause to fight for, we're often a bit, you know, we treat it like it's a war and we're an army and mm. all this. And I think like, I don't know, my experience in a very weird, weird way, my experience of being ill, my experience with Andrea um, and going through the suicidal stuff and everything, it made me more optimistic about things and people and relationships and health even because like the one thing about depression the depression gives you the very worst case scenario everything i was convinced andrew was going to leave me i was convinced she should leave me i was convinced i was going to be dead by the age of 25 i was convinced all kinds of negative things which didn't actually end up happening so it's really corny and boring to say it but you know the cliche that time heals is a cliche for a reason you know you have to sometimes go through the time to disprove those things in your head and realize that not everything is going to fall apart and you know some bad things will definitely happen in your life but good things will happen too and you sometimes need to have those moments of darkness to appreciate the bright light as well absolutely i guess it's just it's so hard to when you're in the grips of something of to no, remember that and stay optimistic mm. and it's uh, optimism such a funny one um because i think you know i am without a doubt an optimistic person but things things grind you down don't they like you know if we take dating an exa- as an example yeah, yeah, absolutely. subconsciously they grind you down like yeah. you talk a lot about consumerism in the book and and i think you know we're mm. we're kind of encouraged to to view being single as a problem that needs solving. Oh, society very much sends that message. Because you, something you write, you say, you know, happiness isn't good for the economy. Mm-hmm. I think sing- being single isn't good for the economy. Like, look at all of the different dating platforms, dating apps, concierge, matchmaking services, all of these things. It's like trying to fix is it being, you. Is it being single? Well, uh, I think it's, it's more about turning being single into a, a problem that needs fixing. Like, yeah. everything is sort of about creating... We're all encouraged... Like, even when you're, like, a married person, like I am, you, you're encouraged to always want what you haven't got. I mean, that that's the culture we're in. Because if we, we've based, most of us, most of us are pri- privileged enough to have running water, we've got shelter, we've got food, we've got the basics of human survival. Mm. So, but if we were just happy with that, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't spend any money. We wouldn't, like, you know, need things. So, so now, you know, famously even going to a, beach you know we've got to be ready for a beach because you know i don't think neolithic stone age cave people thought oh i i I can't go to that beach because i haven't got a six pack i (laughs) i can't you know i can't take my top off and it's like we're just encouraged to be this level of perfection because we're entering the kind of not to get too weird about it but we're entering kind of the age of robots you know sex robots and everything Mm -hmm. else that's about to happen in the next 20 years and we've got to learn to value being human and our rubbishy human selves and our imperfect human selves and stop wanting to be these sort of hairless, perfect androids and embrace our sort of sweaty, weird human selves. Absolutely. <laughs> See our last week's episode <laughs> on the problematic body situation on Love Island. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. Case in point. Can um, I ask how quickly, how old are your children? They are, um, my daughter has just turned nine and my son is ten. So... They're obviously too young to date now. But when they do start, what 
What kind of advice do you think you'll give to them? My son swears he's had a girlfriend, but I <laughs> but it was about when he was six, and I don't think I don't think she knew at the time. <laughs> Not hanging around. I'm sorry, Daisy. I, I, I've got news for you. You had a boyfriend. <laughs> That's so cute. But no, um, advice. I don't know. It's it, it's hard. You kind of fear. You you become that sort of old person who fears for the future because you know you you you're aware when you reach like my scary age of 42 you're aware <laughs> of how much things have changed and I, like there was a famous quote like by douglas adams that like, anything ha- that happens before 35 becomes the sort of normal order of things everything that happens after like 35 is like what is this scary nonsense that's happening around me and you, you've got to resist that but yeah i i do i do i do yeah because you you when you have children you love them so much and you you care for them so much in such a complete way that's beyond most kind of relationship love it's just this total love and you're very scared to hand them over you know mm. are you really going to love them like i love them <laughs> you know what i mean that complete love and it's 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 hard, but we're, we're thinking of moving to a country with arranged marriages and sorting it out. <laughs> that sounds like a very good solution. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in 10 years, I might do the same Yeah, I was about myself. to say, we'll, we'll do that as well. Arrange me. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, not quite at that drastic point yet. Uh, I think that's, I don't know, I think it's just we have to just stay looking after ourselves stay yes. hopeful and i think seeing love as a sort of like love in the book we like greeks famously had seven different words for love and only one of them related to the, what we call romantic relationship love i think love as just an attitude to life as an attitude to our friends as an attitude to ourselves as an attitude to everything and, and then in, if we want to get sort of like quite buddhist and zen about it, it that love will sort of come back to us in all kinds of ways not beyond just relationship love just in in sort of like the karmic cosmic order of things i totally agree Mm. i very much believe happy things happen to happy people and you get back from the world what you put out yeah absolutely yeah and it's about being kind to yourself and you know true we have gone a bit nice and zen here. <laughs> I really like it. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I think this is a very nice um, arch of this podcast, though, because I think we started off, you know, perhaps in the grips of something a bit darker, and now we've come to a, to a nice light. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of light, I suppose, what, what advice would you give to someone who might be struggling with a mental health condition, whether it's anxiety, whether it's they're having panic attacks, or whether they're in the grips of depression? What advice would you give to them if I guess it doesn't really matter if they're mm. in a relationship or not, just just in terms of managing that in relation to yeah. Well, people. I mean, if yeah. you're in a relationship, I suppose if you're in a good relationship where you can talk to someone, then obviously I, I I'm a great believer that talking helps. If you've got someone, it doesn't have to be your um, partner in that sense, but if you've got a close friend or whoever it is, whoever's that close person, and I, I'm a great believer in talking. I think the main thing I, I try and tell people, you know, the thing I'd have wanted to hear when I was 24 um, that no one could have told me is that things change. You know, it's kind of like a weather system. Our minds are, even if you've got, if you're diagnosed with depression forever, you're not at the same permanent flat state of depression often when you hear of these people who've like taken their lives because of illness or whatever you know 
that that was a moment and that was a moment I could have been in but there would have been other moments beyond that point in time where they wouldn't have been in that state of mind and it's just to remember that um you know life changes you you know I, I give the corny metaphor about like the dark cloud like if depression is the dark cloud then you're the actual sky you're the thing containing the depression there's going to be a day when you might be like a british weather system which is quite cloudy but there's going to be some sunny days in your sort of british mind love that metaphor <laughs> that's yeah that's nice yeah I think that's a nice way to think about lots of things mm, definitely lovely i think we've all learned a lot today <laughs> sadly we're out of time <laughs> right we're going to meditate now yeah. yes <laughs> everybody <laughs> lie down on a yoga mat <laughs> <laughs> uh, no but sadly we are out of time but if you have enjoyed this episode and the podcast as a whole please 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 subscribe to millennial love give us a rating a nice review it honestly touches our hearts so much every time we get a nice message from you guys we always screen them and send them to each other and go oh my god look what this person said <laughs> each one of them makes us super happy and it helps other people discover the podcast yeah we love getting your messages we also love hearing your dating disasters and dilemmas which will return in next week's episode uh, so please keep sending them to us you can dm us on instagram at millennial underscore love or you can email us at millennial.love at independent.co.uk. All your stories will be kept anonymous. You can also tweet us if you like. Uh, So many ways to communicate with us. Uh, Rachel underscore Hosey is Rachel's username. I am Olivia Petzler1. No, (laughs) that was a really stupid thing to say. (laughs) We'll let you off. Um, And then if you're not really into email, Twitter or Instagram, there's always Facebook and you can find us there at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash millennial dot love Matt where can people find you um well even though I talk about how stressful Twitter and Instagram are I am on those things <laughs> <laughs> quite a lot um I think Olivia we, we, we're in Twitter contact we're, yeah we're yeah we've got I, the Twitter thing I'm Matt oh, Haig one yeah sorry I'd leave you out I'm recently getting into I'm Instagram which I, is slightly I know it's bad for a lot of people's mental health but I find it a little bit healthier for me than Twitter so I like I, I'm it. getting more into it via Instagram Matt Z Haig I am on mm. there I think What's the Z stand for? Well, when I was eight, I was, I was annoyed that my sister had a middle name and I didn't have a middle <laughs> name. And, and, I, and her name was Phoebe, which pre-Friends was quite an exotic name to, to have. And my name was Matt and there were like five Matthews in my class. And so I, I wanted the most exotic name I had. And my granddad had this massive family tree and, and some distant great, 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 great relative was called Zerubable. So... <laughs> My name is Matthew Zerebable Haig, but it's not official, but I still go with it. <laughs> I love the best thing I've ever heard, to be honest. Just like Phoebe and Friends, Princess Consuela Banana have Absolutely. And so many uh, Friends references in this episode as well, which Christ. I have really enjoyed. And your book is out when? Uh, it's out on my birthday, July the 3rd, that kind of week. Yep. How delightful. What a nice awesome. birthday activity. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's been fantastic. And have a lovely week, everyone. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.